Welcome to this podcast from Wilkesboro Baptist Church, where we are on a mission to lead our neighbors and the nations to follow Jesus. Once again, I would like to welcome you to Wilkesboro Baptist Church. My name is Vince Adams, and I'm one of the lay elders here. And I know I speak for Brother Steve and Marsh also when I say it's a privilege to serve you. And if we can ever be of any help to you, uh, please reach out to us. If you have your Bibles today, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We today are going to step away a little bit from our Bible study in the book of Hebrews as our pastor is away. And as I said earlier, let's continue to remember him in our prayers and his family. And as we look at uh, this passage of Scripture, I'd like to speak to you just a moment this morning about inheriting the kingdom of God. And exactly what that means, and, and Paul gives a, a very good discourse here in three short verses. And we'll unpack this here for just a moment. 1 Corinthians 6, beginning in verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexual or moral or idolaters, or adulterers, or men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, or swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Before we start into this passage of scripture, we want to look at just a little bit of the backgrounds. Uh, the subject of hermeneutics, or how we determine, how we interpret the Word of God. And two of the main rules in the subject of hermeneutics is to whom it was written, and also who wrote it, as well as, of course, the culture that it was written in. Now, we as Christians, uh, and if you study the Bible at all, you should know very well that all Scripture is written for all of our benefits. And I have not found a bit of the Scripture that I could not get some benefit out of. And we know that it was all written by God. It was all divinely inspired. However, they were human authors that put it down. And as we look at this, we think, first of all, the church at Corinth, Greece... This was a church that was founded by Paul on his second missionary journey. And the, uh, being obviously in a Greek provenance, it was uh, influenced by the Greek culture. The Greek culture was very, the people were very educated. They took their learning very seriously. Uh, you, you can study in the book of Acts when Paul went to uh, Mars Hill and he debated and talked to the, some of the Greek philosophers there. This was very important to them. However, much like the Romans, they were very immoral people, especially sexual immorality. And apparently as we study the book of Corinthians, or both of the letters to the Corinthians, we see that a lot of that immorality had um, filtered back into the church. In fact, Corinth, uh, Corinth was not known to be a very pleasant place because of all this immorality. I heard a, a Bible professor from Southeastern Theological one time. I went to a Bible conference, and he, he laughed because he said he grew up when he was growing up. There was a Baptist church right across from him, Corinth Baptist Church. 
And he said, I, I thought to myself once I got sitting by, who in the world would name their church Corinth? You know, of all the problems they had. But they had a pretty bad reputation here. But also, as we look at this, we also have to look at who penned this letter. Think about Paul and his life before conversion. He wrote into Timothy in one of his epistles, the first one, he said that uh, he talked about being a sinner, and he says, I'm chief. I'm the chief sinner. I'm as bad as it gets. And he also, in a lot of his letters, when he would talk about the temptations and the, the sin and things of this sort, he would always use the word we. For example, Ephesians. We wrestle not against the, uh, this flesh and blood principalities. We. He never said to the congregations, this is your temptation. This is your problem. This is the things that you have to deal with. He made it very clear that he had to deal with it too. And that leads us to why in verse 9, the first sentence of this, the first line in verse 9, he says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Paul starts out this discourse with a question. Paul was very concerned about the spiritual health and well-being of, of all of the churches that he founded and all of the people that he had left to Christ, uh, led to Christ and the, the ones that uh, he had, like Timothy, that he had left to uh, pastor these churches and to lead these churches. Who was always very concerned. We see this so many times. Depending on which passage of scripture you're reading. And which translation you're reading. You hear words like. Uh, Do not be deceived. I don't want you to be uninformed. King James version in uh, uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. He says don't be ignorant brothers. So Paul had this great desire. For the people to understand what was written in God's word. And, and what God had in line for them. In store for them. And this also, uh, this also goes into the st uh, statement here. Or the name, the kingdom of God. What did this mean? Now when we think of the kingdom of God. Obviously the first thing that comes to our mind is our eternal life. Heaven. Where we're going after this life and, and, and spending eternity in the presence of Jesus. And of course that is a big part of it. But the kingdom of God here that Paul is referring to, this also included here in this life. Being part of the family of God. Being in the presence of God even here on earth. And of course we know that there's no hope to be part of this kingdom of God without Jesus. Paul goes through three major steps in these three little short verses. First of all, we see our rejection. It's our sin that separates us from the kingdom of God. I was reading as I was preparing this one uh, commentary, um, a more recent commentary. And the writer made the statement that our culture is obsessed with the issue of identity. Now, I agree 100% with him. 
You look around about it, we live in a divided nation and a divided world. We put everybody in these little groups of people. We, we look at their identity, and that's how, you know, that's what we're obsessed, obsessed with. But this was a, this is not just a new thing. This is not just a modern day thing. This was something in Paul's time. If we go on down here in the end of verse 9 and in verse 10, we see a list of sins that Paul listed. And very, only on a couple of them, he just mentions the sin itself, but he talks about the people. In other words, when he's talking about, he, he don't say, you stole something. He says, you're a thief. You didn't commit adultery one time. You're an adulterer. You didn't uh, uh, commit idolatry one time. You're an idolater. So he, even Paul himself, puts them into that category. However, we have to be very careful when we do that. Because we, can, we do not want to put people in a category with their sin to think their sin is more prevalent than someone else's sin. Or, God forbid, their sin is worse than our sin. We have a tendency to rank people. And what happens there, sometimes we have that tendency to rank people outside of God's reach. Outside of God's grace and God's mercy. And this is what we should be very careful with. Let me make this clear to you. If we think certain sins, whether it's on this list that Paul wrote, or he wrote a list in Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 29, there's other places that he mentioned things like this. If we have the tendency to think one of those sins is a bigger disqualifier of God's grace and of God's mercy, then folks, we've missed the mark. We are way, way off. God, we, if we do this, we make God smaller. We're saying, my God that I serve, my God that saved me, he can save me from my sin, but he can't save them from their sin. Let me tell you, my God can save anyone. My God can reach anyone. He can touch anyone. And he goes on down then, and starting in verse 11, he said, and such were some of you. Now let me assure you, I'm not here, just as Paul did not intend this when he penned this, I'm not here to preach one of these, you know, fire and brimstone, stick my finger in your face, you know, you're going to go to hell messages. That's not, that's not why I'm here, and that's what, not what Paul intended here. Paul listed, probably when he was writing this letter, he was probably thinking of the worst Sins that he could think of. And probably, I'm sure, some of the sins that he had got word that they were committing here at the church of Corinth. But his point was to show no matter how bad those sins are, his God's grace and God's mercy is able to overcome those sins and able to save you from those sins. So with that said, some of you folks here, you may be guilty of one of those sins or more. Or maybe none of them. But you've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. In fact, there's some things that's not on that list. I want you to think about two or three other sins 
What about false imprisonment? What about throwing somebody in prison and locking them up and locking them away just because of what they believe? What about torture? What about murder? That's not listed in that list our Paul give, but that's pretty drastic, isn't it? I want you to think about who penned this letter. Paul was involved in all those things. Paul, before he met Jesus on that road to Damascus, and that's where he was going. He was actually going then to get Christians, to bring them back, to throw them in jail, to put them on trial. Probably a lot of them would have been killed. A lot of them would have been tortured. That's all kinds of things. That's why Paul was so uniquely qualified to write this letter and to write this discourse. So, if that list was not what keeps you out of heaven, what does? Go back to the very first part. He says, do you not know who? The unrighteous. I looked the word unrighteous up in, I think, three different Bible dictionaries, and every one of those dictionaries used the same Old Testament term in part of the description. And that word is heathen. And by the way, us here in the South, you know, we add the R to it. You know, it's a heathen. <laughs> it's not a heathen, it's a heathen. And we've also twisted that word. Because that word in Old Testament times, basically it just meant a non-believer. It, it was somebody else, a Gentile, someone outside the Jewish faith. Somebody that did not believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But now even that word, you know, we, we, we look at it and the most vile person, that's what we want to call it. But that word heathen is only used seven times in the New Testament. Just like the word unrighteous or unrighteousness or unrighteously, uh, a word associated with that, it's only used two or three times in the Old Testament. So basically, them words are synonymous. They pretty much mean the same thing. So Paul is saying here, the non-believers, they're the unrighteous. They're the ones that will not enter into the kingdom. So this goes all the way back to the original sin. It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. When sin was introduced into the world. And after that, after sin was introduced into the world, it was passed down from generation to generation to generation. Folks, let me give you a rude awakening. You were born with it. You were born in it. David said in, in uh, uh, Psalms 51, after his sin with Bathsheba, when he is confessing to God, he said, In, in sin I was conceived. And I was born in sin. Jesus in John chapter 3, when Nicodemus came to him by night, he says, if you do not believe, you are already condemned. Let me interject this. Uh, I have learned as a preacher and given a lot of messages, the only sin that will keep you out of heaven and out of the kingdom of God is the sin of non-belief. And where is that sin committed? Probably the most. Probably right here on Sunday morning when an invitation is given and somebody rejects it. So this is the point that Paul is making. We have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. In other words, without Jesus, friends, we were all excluded. We were all rejected. 
that sin separated us from God's kingdom. One writer I read, and I heard a couple folks commented after the other service about this, love this term. One of the writers I read said, the church here is made up of glorious messes. Glorious messes. Think about that for a moment. I stand before you, this man you're looking at today, I was a mess. And I still am a mess. I'll admit it, I'm the first one to admit it, I'm still a mess. But praise God, now I'm a glorious mess. Because of the salvation. And that brings us to the second point of this. Redemption. God has his plan in place for reconciliation. I wrote this up exactly like this, and I had, they put it on the screen exactly right. His plan. Let me make this clear. Our plan will not work. Our goodness will not work. Rituals will not work. Religion will not work. His plan will work. His plan of salvation that he laid down at the foundation of the world. And as we go through this passage of scripture, we see three steps in this uh, plan of salvation. He says, you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified. The first term there, washed, the Greek term here for washed, this means washed completely. Washed thoroughly, washed away. As I was preparing this, I couldn't help my, my, I went back to my childhood a little bit. And I'm sure some of you folks can relate to this. I can remember mom calling us in for dinner. And the conversation would go something like this. Did you wash? Yes, mom, I washed. What's the next question? Well, are you clean? <laughs> Boy, we can remember that. <laughs> Let me tell you something. When Christ washes us, when he washes our sins away for his blood, we are clean. We are completely clean. Peter, he learned this. He learned this back in uh, Acts chapter 10 when he was on that rooftop at Joppa. And he saw that sheet coming down of all these, uh, what he thought was unclean animals. And the voice from heaven told him to eat. He said, no, I'm not going to eat. These are unclean. And that voice told him what God has called clean. What God has made clean. I think is that your word they use. God made clean. You don't call unclean. And then, of course, in Acts chapter 11, then he had to go back to Jerusalem. And he had to make that case before the rest of the apostles. When God cleanses, when Jesus cleanses us, we are made clean. We're clean once and for all. This washing is very important. It was very important back in the Old Testament times. The, the tabernacles and the temple it had wash basins all around. There was wash basins between the uh, sacrificial altar and the Holy of Holies. This was a very important part of worship was to be cleansed. cleansed. You had to be cleansed. The second thing we see as we're washed, we're sanctified. 
This word here, this means made holy, consecrated, set apart. This same Paul wrote in his letter to Timothy, 2 Timothy 2, 21. He said, therefore, if anyone cleanses himself, in other words, been washed from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, sanctified, useful to the master of the house, and ready for every good work. And it's only through the blood of Jesus. Hebrew 13, 12. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate to sanctify the people through his own blood. Only through the blood of Jesus are we sanctified and washed and cleansed and made holy. It's not the rituals. It's not even the baptism. I had an interesting experience several, many, many years ago. My youngest son, when he was saved. And when he made his profession of faith on a Sunday morning, after we'd been talking with him, we scheduled a baptism two weeks later. And the next week, we were going to be going out of town. We were, we, we'd had a family vacation planned for a while, so we take off out of town. And as we were driving down the road, the song, Are You Washed in the Blood, came on the radio or the CD, whatever we was listening to. And I knew he was very reluctant. He is like he didn't want to go on that trip. And then he spoke up. And he said, I'm not now, but I will be next week. So I had to explain to him then, okay, okay, son, back up here. No, you're washed in the blood. This baptism, this is a ritual, this is an honor, this is something you're showing your dedication to God. This is not the salvation. That's already been taken care of. I had a lady at the last church, a pastor, and she got kind of upset at me one time because a young man come down and I, he prayed and I led him to the Lord. And he, she told me later, she says, I don't think you talked to him long enough at the altar. <laughs> I said, ma'am, when he stepped out of that back row and started down, he was saved because he had already made that commitment. That's when it starts. It starts immediately. And notice also in that, uh, path, that verse that uh, Paul wrote to Timothy, he said, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. When we're saved, when we're washed, when we're sanctified, we're set apart to work for God and to work for His honor and for His glory. And that's why our pastor the last few weeks has, has preached so much on uh, our gifts and how we need to use them. And we need to use them to honor God. And then after we're washed and sanctified, here comes the beautiful part. He said we're justified. That word justified in the Greek is dikeo. And listen to this. It means to render just or innocent. I stand before you, you're looking at a man right now that I'm a long ways from being innocent. I'm a long ways from being perfect in this life. But once I was washed and sanctified, God looks down upon me and he sees me as innocent. What a blessing that is. What a blessing that is. Now, a couple of things about these three things we want to just remind you of. First of all, this all happens immediately. A 
upon your conversion. Now, being sanctified and made holy, for example, you know, it's a learning process. You're going to still, you're going to grow, hopefully. You're growing along the way. You're going to mess up. You're still going to sin. You're going to fall short of the glory of God. But once he saves you, once you accept that grace and mercy, and it comes into your heart, as we learned in our life's memory verse from last month, we're saved to the uttermost. We're saved to the uttermost. And a couple warnings come with this. God will, or Satan, he, he wants to continually remind us of our past. Just a few weeks ago, I had two or three experiences of that in one week. Uh, we, I, I, I went and filled in at a church. I came here, taught Sunday school, and then went up the road to a church and preached. And as I was preparing that week and meditating and studying, at least two, maybe three times, it's almost like I, I felt the presence of Satan putting his arm up on my shoulder and saying, are you sure you, you should be doing this? You know what you used to be. You know how you used to act. You know where you came from. But that's when we have to do like Jesus did when he was tempted. We say, Satan, get behind me. Because I've been washed. And I've been sanctified. And I've been justified. I've heard people say that about preachers a lot of times. That's, what in the world gives that preacher the right to stand up there and preach like that? Well, I'll tell you what gives it. God gave him that right. God gave him that opportunity. Not only will he continue to remind us, he will continue to tempt us. We're doing a Bible study of the elders, or our daily Bible reading from William Garnell. This is what he wrote in one of the studies two or three days ago. He said, the flesh which you are so often glory in is but one step from filth and corruption. Only one step away, Satan likes to tempt us. That's why we have to constantly remind ourselves of our washing, of our sanctification of our justification. And then finally, after we go through that rejection process and after that redemption process, then we'll have a reward. All who embraces this plan will be rewarded. What's the reward? Well, first of all, I mentioned at the outset, uh, the kingdom of God just don't just necessarily include heaven, but that is a big part of it. Folks, I'm looking forward to it. I mean, I've got a place waiting on me with no pain, no suffering. A place where I'll be in the presence of Jesus. No sin. What a glorious place that's going to be. Life after death. And that's eternal. But here on earth, there's other rewards too. We're no longer defined by our past and by our sin. Lost a good friend of mine here two or three weeks ago, a pastor friend. And when he was younger, man, before I ever knew him, he was apparently kind of a rounder. He got arrested for something, and later on he met someone, and he is introduced. And he told me his name, and he says, Yeah, I think he stole a car. I don't remember exactly what it was, but he said, Yeah, aren't you the man that stole that car? 
He said, no. That was the old man. I'm the new one. I'm the new man. You see, that past is behind us. The world may think, remember it. Devil, like I say, Satan, he remembers it and wants to pass it back to us. But we're new creatures in Christ. We have a new life. We have a new start. We have a new purpose. I'm sure many of you can, and I can give you example, example. I'm telling you people that has, has been so self-centered and, and just so harsh, and, and, but when once they're saved, once God gets there, they become so generous. They have a new purpose. They have a new purpose in life. You'll have a new family. If you don't believe that, look around about you today. Look at this family of believers you're sitting here with today. You're welcomed into the family of God. You will undergo a glorious change. In closing, I'd like to say, this is thought of as an old cliche, but it's very biblical. There's an old saying, there's only two kinds of people in this world, lost sinners and saved sinners. It's very biblical. If you don't believe that, go home this afternoon, read Matthew 25. And Jesus talks about separating the sheep from the goats. The ones that knows him, the ones that don't know him. That's all that matters. That's all that matters. If you're here today and you're a saved sinner, as we pray and as you meditate, you need to thank God. You need to thank God and you need to thank him for that contrast. Think about it. And that's one of the greatest blessings. of. That's one of the greatest rewards I have. Is that contrast of where I used to be and what I used to be and what I am today? Thank Him for that. But if you're not, if you don't fit into that category of one of the ones that are washed, I beg of you, make that decision today. Finally, are you one of the rejected ones? Or are you one of the justified ones? Make that decision today. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I come to you today at the end of this service. Lord, I'm so grateful, so thankful, Lord, for your word. Lord, I'm so thankful that we have these words that we can apply to our everyday life, daily life. Lord, I'm so thankful for Paul writing it and these letters and you preserving them. And Lord, I just pray today you'll just move in this service, whatever the need be. I just pray that you'll answer the call according to your precious holy will. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Remember to like and subscribe wherever podcasts are found.